We're going to be starting a series in the book of Acts. And so I would have you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses uh, of the Acts of the Apostles. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to our God and our King. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would move in our hearts, that you would do that work in us, that you would make us more like you in every way, Lord Jesus. We ask that as we hear your Word, we ask that you would teach us as we all sit humbly under the authority of your Word. Speak to us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever been to a, a vibrant, a vibrant black African-American worship service, you've likely heard during the preaching of the Word the phrase, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? And that invitational question often comes at the end of a statement of truth uh, about God or His works to which the preacher invites the audience to testify with him as being indeed true. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? It's an invitation. It's an invitation to participate with the preacher in the activity of proclaiming the good news, which the preacher has just declared. And now, depending on the day or depending on the mood of the congregation, the preacher may have to pull that witness out of the people of God. But the point is this, that witnessing to the goodness of God and to the glory of His work isn't just the job of the preacher. It is the job of the whole community of God's people. You weren't called by God just to hear the good news for yourself. You were called to declare it, to testify 
to who God is and what He has done. The, the book of Acts often called the Acts of the Apostles might be better titled the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. In verse 1, Luke uh, says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication, brothers and sisters, of course, is that Luke is now telling us or going to tell Theophilus and us the things that Jesus continued to do, only now through those He had chosen, those for whom He had given His life, those whom others would come to know through through whom others would come to know Him and put their faith in Him and join with them in declaring the good news that He had passed on to them. In other words, the preacher, the preacher, the preacher par excellence, as they would say, had declared the truth about the kingdom of God to His chosen community, and He was now asking them, can I get a witness? Only he didn't ask the question, he declared to those brothers and sisters, you shall be my witnesses. In other words, I've declared the truth about God's kingdom to you, and now you're going to join with me in declaring that kingdom in the world around you. And while there was uniqueness to the apostles' testimony in that it lays the foundation for our own and was accompanied with signs and wonders that testified to that reality, they were not alone. The apostles were not alone in being called out to witness to the good news of the kingdom of God that has come in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember what the apostle Peter is going to tell us later. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Can I get a witness? If you've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light and you are thankful, say amen. Yeah. New City, we are together with all God's people around the world. We are the chosen witnesses of God men and women, boys and girls called out by the King to go out into the world and carry the message of our Lord, the message about God's kingdom that has come in Him and through Him. And this, of course, is exactly what Luke himself was doing, right, as he wrote this two-part history of the teachings of, and actions of Jesus. And so, in the gospel, in the gospel of Luke and in Acts, Luke himself was witnessing to Theophilus. He was declaring to him the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, what we do know is that Luke thought it important to patiently and carefully declare to him the truth about Jesus. And this begs a question for us, do we care enough, do we care enough about our calling from the Lord and about this world to patiently and carefully declare to it the truth about the kingdom of God, which has come in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us look out at our world? How many of us look out at our world frustratingly and say, we told them about God's justice, the justice of His kingdom, and they won't listen to us. We told them about the moral integrity of God's kingdom, and they won't 
listen to us. We've told them about the kindness of God's kingdom, and they won't listen to us. We've told them that the kingdom rescues the poor and needy from the ash heap of life, but they won't listen to us. But I want to encourage you this morning, church, that that, that we are in a line of witnesses that goes back thousands of years. We are connected to that great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews 11, identified as such in the beginning of chapter 12. This, this witness, this witness to the truth of God's kingdom coming and now coming, Jesus has been going on, brothers and sisters, for a long, long time. And this calling we've received from Him requires patient endurance, careful instruction to those around us. And by careful, I don't mean dispassionate. I mean that instruction that is full of care, full of love for the world, that desires to see people come to know the Savior, that desires to see people be pulled out of darkness into the marvelous light of the kingdom of God. Amen, people of God. So what I want to do, New City, as I start my tenure here as your pastor, is I want to walk through the book of Acts, and I want to show us what it means that we are His chosen witnesses, that we are His chosen people called out to declare the good news of His kingdom in this world, in Southeast Grand Rapids, in the city of Grand Rapids, in this state, in this country, and and on the other continents of this world. I want to talk about what it means to be His witnesses. So, I want to start this morning by just asking this question, what, what are the elements that shape this witness? What are the elements that shape this witness that we are called out to declare in this world? Well, first of all, let's talk about the content of the witness, the contents of the witness. We're told this in verse 3, He presented Himself alive to them after His sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And Luke, the other book written to Theophilus, we read these words from our Lord Jesus regarding the nature of His ministry. He says this, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus saw in His ministry, in His teachings, in His actions, He saw the ushering in of the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in His exaltation, God was declaring in His Son that His rule and reign had broken into this world. He was declaring that the forces of darkness that laid hold to this world, that they were being cast down, that those forces were being defeated, and that He, as the rightful King, was laying claim to His creation through His Son by the power of the Spirit. And so in Christ, the rule of God, brothers and sisters, has come. The rule that is declared in Psalm 145 with these words, it says this, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and they shall tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations." 
I'll tell you this morning, when we witness about Jesus, when we tell the story about our Lord and our King, we are telling the story of the kingdom of God that has broken into this world through His death and His resurrection and His exaltation. We are telling people that the rule of God is now here, that it is now here in all of its glory and goodness. It has come. It has come. The invitation, brothers and sisters, that we are giving to people, the invitation that we are giving to them is to give their lives to this king, this king who is not a cruel king but the true king, as he is described in Psalm 145, the king who is full of mercy toward them and full of compassion toward them and full of love toward them, the king who is full full of justice toward them, the king who is marked by love and compassion the King who is full of grace and truth. And in giving ourselves to Him, we are also being called to submit to His ways. You want to know what the rule of God looks like? You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes into this world? Look no further than the life and actions of your Lord. You want to know what the kingdom looks like when it comes? You want to know what it looks like? Then look at Jesus, full of grace and truth. Look at Him patiently endure with His apostles. Look at Him care for widows in their distress. Look at Him invite outcasts into His family. Look at Him go willingly to the cross for sinners. Look at Him refuse to pay evil for evil. Look at Him forgive His mockers. Look at Him bow His head and die for a bunch of men and women. who are unworthy sinners. Look at Him in love and truth, challenge and rebuke the oppressive. Look at Him do good to His enemies. Look at Him go willingly to the cross for sinners. You want to know what the rule of God looks like when it breaks into this world? Look no further than the life of our Lord Jesus and realize that the shape of His life is also meant to be the shape of your life. The one who demonstrates the rule and reign of God is now calling you to shape your life around that rule and reign of God that is broken into the world. And so, as we go out into the world to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, we need to recognize that we are not simply calling people to sign up for a get-out-of-get-into-heaven-free card. (laughs) The gospel isn't just about what happens when you die. It is about what happens as you live your life in this world. The new heavens, the new heavens, the new heavens and the new earth are coming. And if we die before it comes, as many of us will, then we will be in the presence of our Lord to await the day when He makes all things new. But in the here and now, the proclamation of the kingdom of God is a call to put your faith in the Messiah and King and to orient your whole life around that kingdom. And so it means asking ourselves and those we proclaim the kingdom to a question. And here's that question. What or who is really sitting on the throne of your life? What or who is really sitting on the throne of your life? Are my national hopes 
and dreams. The dreams of living in a country where all my desires, all my hopes, all my rights, all my privileges, all my comforts are secured. Is that what is sitting on the throne of your life? In a moment, we're going to see the apostles asking Jesus about the kingdom being restored to Israel, the focus being Israel, right, and not other people. So are my own selfish hopes, are my own selfish desires ruling over my heart? Perhaps it's not national hopes that are ruling your life, but material ones. Maybe you're finding yourself obsessed with the desire for more and more comfort, more and more things for yourself, more and more things for your children. And the drive is consuming you such that time with God and time with family are drowned out by the need to earn more and more money, to secure more and more stuff. After Jesus told the parable in Luke 16 about the dishonest manager, He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then we read this, the Pharisees who love money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Do you love money? Do you love stuff? Is that what's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is that what is ruling over your life? These and other practical questions, these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Who is really ruling over me? What is really driving my life? Is it the kingdom of God or is it other things? It's all right. Let's move to the next one. (laughs) The content, let's talk about the power. Let's talk about the power of the witness. In verses 6 to 8, you know, you get to those moments in the sermon where you kind of hear a pin drop and you just move on to the next thing. Like, I must have touched, I must have touched somebody's spot, so I'll, I'll… The content is the kingdom of God, the power of the witness. Listen to what, listen to what we read in verses 6 to 8. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The apostles questioned to Jesus, it isn't hard to comprehend, and its its meaning, I believe, is on the surface of the question. Is it time, is it time for our national sovereignty to be restored to us? Is it time for our national sovereignty as the people of Israel, is it time for that sovereignty to be restored to us? Is it time for us to get our country back? Is it time for us to get our country back? You see, the Jewish nation, they had been under the rule of foreigners for centuries now. And the apostles wanted to know if that foreign rule was now over. Does the coming of the kingdom of God mean we are going to get our country back? Is the kingdom of God, in other words, consistent with our national hopes? 
Will we, will we be restored to power now that God's kingdom has arrived? And, and, and this shouldn't actually strike us as odd that the, that the apostles would ask that question because th this desire for position, this desire for power in this world was something that the apostles, like all of us, struggled with. Remember the question that was posed by two of his apostles during his earthly ministry? In Mark 10, we read, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And of course, in Matthew, it is the mother of the sons of Zebedee who make this request of Jesus, which might indicate that these boys sent their mama to Jesus uh, to ask for this privilege, uh, perhaps thinking that Jesus surely wouldn't deny a mother's request. Either way, <laughs> the desire for power and greatness, right, is laid bare. And in case we want to absolve the other apostles, remember that they all argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom. In Luke 22, we read, now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And oh, by the way, that wasn't the first time they had that argument. Just in case you think they only had that argument one time during Jesus' ministry, in Luke 9, we read this, verse 46, and then a dispute arose among them of which of them was to be the greatest. This was a problem, is all I'm saying, with the apostles. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted rule. And can I tell you something? So do we. So do we. We want, we want position. We want power. We want rule. We want to be able to tell everyone else what to do. We want everyone else bowing to us. We want everyone else following our agenda and our way. We want to be in charge. We want to be in charge. We want to be able to tell everybody else what to do. We're still wrestling for privilege and power. Perhaps, perhaps the, the apostles were wrestling for believing that attaining it might make them even better witnesses to God's rule. If, if we get power, if we get, if we get authority, if we get to be in control, if we get, if, if, if we get to be the ones that everyone else is coming to, then, then we'll, have a, we'll have better ability to be able to share the good news, to be able to spread the, the gospel of the kingdom. If we can just get in power, then everybody will know that Jesus is king because we'll get to, we'll get to be the ones making the decisions. If we get control in the world, we'll be able to carry the kingdom of God more boldly to those around us. But can I remind you of something? The people of Israel had had that kind of power before. <laughs> and they really didn't wield that power well. And so here are the disciples, here are the apostles, signaling again to Jesus their desire for position, their desire for power, like that of the world. But Jesus offers them no such power. Instead, instead, he offers them a greater power. 
one that will enable them to face down the powers that they are about to come up against in the proclamation of God's kingdom. Rather than dwelling on times and seasons of earthly rule, which, which, have no, which they have no real power over, that's God's territory, that's what Jesus tells them, right? You have no power over that. They instead need to focus on their call to be witnesses. And the reason is because they're about to come up against forces way stronger than them. Indeed, they're about to encounter the forces that are behind the injustices of the world, the divisions of the world, the oppression of the world. And so, in proclaiming the kingdom of God, they're about to encounter spiritual enemies, spiritual forces of darkness that are behind the evil that is in this world. And if they are going to be able to proclaim the good news of God in the face of those powers, they need a power greater than the power of position. They need a power greater than the power of being in control. They need a power that is greater than being able to sit over and rule over the kingdoms of the earth. They need a power, they need a power that can match the spiritual forces of darkness that they are about to come up against. And Jesus says, that is the power that I am about to give you. I am about to pour my spirit on the inside, put my spirit on the inside of you so that you can go out into all the world and face all of those enemies of darkness and proclaim the good news of my kingdom in the face of it. And that's the power you need. That's the power you need to fight against the spiritual forces of darkness. You need a spiritual power, and the Holy Spirit is that power. You see, we won't position when what we really need is the promise of the Father. We won't position when what we really need is the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit of God. And can I tell you something? You know how you, you, you know how you know when you're operating out of your own power versus the power of the Spirit? Well, one way is to examine ourselves as to how we react when our authority is challenged. How we react when, 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 when the power we have been given is challenged. The apostles had just seen what happens when human power and position is at work versus when the power of the Spirit of God is at work. They, they saw it in the death of their Lord. The religious leaders, rather than listening to Jesus to hear the Spirit's voice speaking through Him, instead they did what those operating in their own power and out of their own desire for position often do. The Lord has shown by His words and His actions what happens when one is led by the Spirit of God, when one is not led by his own lust for position and power. The one exalts himself, and the other humbles himself, even to the point of death. You see, when the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was going to work in these men wasn't just the power of signs and wonders and clear speech and energy and the like. They were going to receive that kind of power from the Spirit too. But in, in addition to this, they were going to receive the power to humble themselves in the service of others in the same way that their Lord humbled Himself in their service. To preach the kingdom of God to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth, they were going to need humility because much of witnessing is actually making ourselves servant to others. Much of witnessing is making ourselves servants to others. It's becoming all things to all people, as the Apostle Paul tells us, in order that we may win some. 
And that takes a powerful work of the Spirit in us because at our core, we are self-centered. We are self-protective. We are self-concerned. Just think about it. Witness in Samaria, among my enemies, among the people who despise my people, among the people I despise, how are you going to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in Samaria among a people who, whom you are despised by and whom you despise? How are you going to take the message of the gospel to that people if you aren't empowered by the Spirit to humble yourself? You better be working with more than human power in such a case. The power that makes you humble when you want to be great. Otherwise, you'll be saying and thinking things consistent with the statement for which the disciples were rebuked in Luke 9, verse 54. The Pharisees who, uh, the, the disciples said to Jesus, shall we call down fire upon these people who refuse to listen to the message of God? And I know you all don't think those kinds of things when you're thinking about your enemies, but sometimes people think things like that when they're coming up against their enemies. Sometimes people don't actually want to go and talk to folk who… You, you, you know, if you're not careful what, 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 you, what you'll be thinking, actually, what, what, the, the way you'll be reacting, actually, as you take that message out is, is this neighborhood is hopeless. These folk are worthless. I mean, y'all don't say that. I'm just saying I've heard people say that before. These, these people are cursed. These, 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 these people will never be anything other than what they, what they are. We, we might as well just lock them up. I'm not saying y'all say that. I'm just… We, we, we may as well put them out. We may as well just let them kill each other off. I mean, those are not the thoughts that, that we think, because we're better than the apostles, right? We don't want to call down fire from heaven. How are you going to proclaim the kingdom of God to your enemies if you don't have a power at work in you that makes you humble when you want to be great? that makes you serve when you want to be served. Amen, people of God. The content of the witness, the power of the witness, the scope of the witness. In verse 8 we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. I want you to think of the people who you most struggle to love. I want you to just right now, right now as we're sitting here, I want you to think of the people that you most struggle to love. And don't tell me you love everybody without distinction. Let's be real in the house of God. I want you to imagine the people you most have beef with in your heart. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus standing in front of you and saying, you shall be my witnesses to that group of people. To those folk who you are most in conflict with, 
who you most despise and who you are most despised by. You will be my witnesses to them. I imagine, I imagine that the apostles didn't struggle much with their call to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, your close relatives, your countrymen, they, they get on your nerves, right, sometimes, but in the end, they, they, they're your peoples, right? You know them, you know their issues, you know their faults, their failings, but I imagine when the word Samaria came out of Jesus' mouth, there was some major cringing going on among the brothers. I know it's not in the text, but I know my Bible and I know the historical animosity that existed between Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. I also know that it took persecution in Jerusalem to thrust the early church into the very territory that Jesus had called them to witness. I ain't saying that they didn't want to go. All I'm saying is that the brothers weren't in a rush to get there. And if Samaria posed a problem, the uttermost parts of the earth weren't any more appealing since that meant the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, the peoples under whose rule they had been for centuries. You see, the scope of the witness that Jesus called His apostles to and that He calls us to, it isn't just about geography. I want you to hear me this morning. It isn't just about geography. It's about coming to grips with our divisions. It's about coming to grips with Babel. It's about coming to grips with that lust for greatness that caused us to unite against God at the Tower of Babel, a lust which now fuels our divisions and causes us to despise one another. The good news of the kingdom of God is the reversal of that division. It is God in Christ undoing what we created through our own sin. Our lust for greatness caused us to be divided. And now Jesus, who has come with the message of the rule of God, says, now I'm going to send you apostles into the very world and among the very people with whom you are divided, and I'm going to call you to take this message of the kingdom of God to them so that I might reverse what your sin created. And our witness to the good news of the kingdom of God come in Jesus, it has to address our human divisions. It has to. You don't want to talk about race? Too bad. It is a division that the gospel of the kingdom is reversing. You don't want to talk about wealth and poverty? Too bad. It is a division that the gospel of the kingdom is reversing. You don't want to talk about gender conflict? Too bad. It is a, it is a division that the gospel of the kingdom is reversing. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in the very places geographically and relationally where division reigns. So the scope of the witness isn't just geographically wide, it's relationally wide also. In other words, we don't just have geographic miles to to traverse, we have relational miles to traverse as well. And the gospel of the kingdom is the very word that God is using to help us traverse those miles. Jesus is after the creation of a new humanity. And in order to get there, the old divisions and the accompanying customs and practices that undergird them, they have to be put to death. 
They have to be. So the apostles didn't realize it yet in the narrative in front of us, but they were going to get a lesson from God about the grounds of acceptance in this church. They were going to get a lesson about what it meant for them to be His people, not just from Jerusalem and Judea, but His people from Samaria and His people from the uttermost parts of the earth. Can I tell you something? The truth is, 2,000 years later, we'll st- we're, st- we're still learning those lessons. We're still learning what it means for God to reverse the divisions and to make us one new humanity again. And so going to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth would lead to the exposure of old and new wounds, a division among the peoples. Just think back to Jesus' experience at the well with the Samaritan woman. There is not a way to bear witness to the good news of the kingdom of God come in Jesus without dealing with the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and other divisions that sin has brought into the world. We have to face those divisions if we're going to be able to show people how the gospel heals them. We have to talk about race. We have to talk about these things in our land. We have to be reminded during this Black History Month, we have to be reminded that the black church exists not just because black people like black worship and black preaching. The black church exists because it was born out of a refusal of white Christians historically to receive black Christians as equal image bearers and thus as full members of the family of God. We got to talk about that, and we got to deal with that, and we got to address the reality of how we have divided ourselves historically and how that continues to wreak havoc in the church even today. We have to continue saying that, that, that Sunday morning is the most divided hour in the land during this hour that we're worshiping because we still have not learned how to deal with the things that we have done historically to black peoples in this country. We have to face that. We have to grapple with that ongoing legacy in our land. And we have to not just preach the kingdom of God, but institute practices in the church that are consistent with the kingdom of God. And rather than simply being hung up with or hung up on whether or not we are guilty for our father's sins, we are to ensure that in our day we don't keep walking in them. We don't keep doing the things that our fathers did, that we don't keep erecting the things that our fathers erected, that we don't keep following in their footsteps, that we lament and repent the things that have been done in the past, and that we institute new ways of obedience in the church that don't take us back to where we were. Amen, people of God. If we're going to be witnesses, it means dealing with those divisions that are going to show up when we get to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we can't ignore them. We can't sweep them under the carpet or postpone dealing with them for a later time, like 50 years after it's happened. I'm just… I'm not saying that's what we're doing today. I'm just… The kingdom of God that has come in Jesus. It's broken into the world, the time for shaping our lives around that kingdom by dealing with our divisions. That time is here. That time is here. So the scope of the witness is the world, and not just geographically, but relationally. And so we need to be ready to offer full membership into God's family 
with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that come with that membership to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Amen, people of God. Let me close with this, the certainty of our witness, the content, the power, the scope, the certainty. In verse 9 through 11, we read this, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the apostles in this moment. Some of them, of course, had seen Jesus' majestic glory before on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when His face shined like the sun and His clothes became as bright as light. They knew then that they were beholding the King, the Son of God in the flesh. And now here they are, all of them, all of them, all the apostles, they are, they, they are here gazing at an equally majestic sight as their Lord is enveloped in a cloud and, and taken away into the heavens. And don't let the image of being taken up be lost on you. The disciples knew that this was a, they knew it was a kingly image, an image of the promised king ascending into the heavens to take his rightful seat beside the Father. It wouldn't be lost on them now that they were beholding the one pictured in Daniel 7, the one like a son of man who comes to the ancient of days and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. The apostles were looking at the true king. But here's the thing, he's leaving. He's leaving. And the two men standing beside them who are, who are angels in human form, they give us a clue into the apostles' mindset as they watch Jesus being taken up into the heavens. After asking them why they are standing gazing into the heavens, they tell them, they tell the, the apostles, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, the one who is now ascending to take his seat on the throne next to the Father is coming again to take his place as king over the world. And what the, what, what, what the apostles had to have been thinking as they watched Jesus ascend is this, what about the part where the peoples and nations and languages serve them? What about the part where, where, where the oppressive yoke of our enemies is broken? What about the part where, where the world is made right, where, where, where injustice is finally done away with? If the king is leaving, what of the earth? If the king is leaving, what of the earth? What about the things being made right here? And most of us in this room, we ask that same question from time to time, don't we? We know that Jesus is king. We know that He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We know that He is God. We know that He died for our sins. We know that He rose again from the dead. We know that we are His people. We know that He loves us, and yet we still look out at the world and we ask, what of the earth? What of the earth? What about this world with all of its brokenness and sin, with all its racism and division, with all its greed and materialism, with all its poverty and want, with all its oppression and violence? And to that question, to that very question, the angels reply 
to the apostle. And that reply resounds down the centuries to reach our ears, to reach our eyes. And it says to us, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. That one who was taken up bodily in power and glory will return bodily in power and glory. The king, the king, watch this, the king didn't leave never to return. He took his seat beside the father until all his enemies and our enemies become a footstool for his feet. For he must reign, says the apostle Paul, until he has put all enemies under his feet. No, he didn't leave never to return. He left to finish his work. And so in the meantime, church, we got to do the work of telling the world about the kingdom of God, telling the world about the Savior, telling the world about the one who has come to usher in the rule and reign of God into this world. He didn't leave never to return. He's coming back. And the reason you can go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and have confidence is because you know that that rule of God will be established in this world. So it don't matter what the rulers of this earth say. It doesn't matter how much they will their power. It doesn't matter how much they try to reign in this world and have their evil agendas established. The day is coming where every enemy (laughs) will be put down and the king will take his seat, his rightful place over this earth. Amen, people of God? So so here's the deal. Let us then, as the church, be found doing the business of the king when he comes back. (laughs) Amen, people of God. You will be my witnesses. And that call is shared by all of us who have our faith in Jesus. We're called to proclaim the good news of the kingdom that's come in Jesus. He's not left us without what we need to fulfill the call. He's told us what the kingdom is, where the power for it comes from, who the message is to be preached to, and how we can know for certain it will be fulfilled. Church, With all of this, let us be about the king's business until he comes again.